Hello, and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to learn about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder and CEO of Stitch. You can find out more about me and hear about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. All right, today on the show, we have Sarah Catanzaro, head of data at Mattermark. Sarah tells us about the career trajectory of Somali pirates, the classification algorithms that Mattermark uses to sort companies into different industries, and how adversary simulation and the analysis of an insurgency prepared her for building a database of private companies. And here's our conversation. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Statistically Interesting. Uh, I'm Jake Stein, and I'm very excited to be joined by a super interesting guest today. Uh, Guest, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Sarah Catanzaro, and I lead the data team at Mattermark. Awesome. Really appreciate you joining. Uh, and uh, so for folks that aren't familiar with Mattermark, what exactly does that company do? Absolutely. Uh, Mattermark is a deal intelligence platform. So we collect data on private and public companies that is distributed across the web and siloed in other places. And we use that information to help both investors find potential portfolio companies and to help sales teams identify potential leads. Yeah, and uh, our our sales team has actually used Mattermark quite a bit, and it's been very useful for us. So I think it's a very cool product. Um, you said you're in charge of the, the data end of that product. So what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of ambiguity in general around what a data team is. And we did have to kind of handle some of this ambiguity initially at Mattermark. Right now, I'd say that our data team sits at the nexus of product and engineering. So for understanding what types of questions our customers are asking, for determining where we can find the information necessary to answer those questions, for scoping out the mechanism by which we can collect that information, and then working with our engineering team and other vendors to actually get it and then transform it into a way that our customers can interact with it fairly seamlessly. And is there a like a specific example or a case you can think of recently? Because it seems like there's like you can follow the arc from the customer need to you know identification to sourcing the data to actually building it into the product, something where you could take us through the journey um, of something where the data team had to shepherd it through? Sure, absolutely. I think a great example would be our industry tagging system. So for instance, a lot of people want to identify e-commerce companies or on-demand companies. And these definitions are fairly vague. So initially, our data team had to work very closely with customers and potential customers and other thought leaders to more stringent definitions of these industries to provide examples of companies that were representative of those industries and those that work more edge cases. Now, the next do we then provide the information about whether a company is an e-commerce company or not? Sources of information available on the web. And so the first thing that we do is just try to attack this as a human. So we'll go out, look online, see if we can find sources of structured information, which are much easier to ingest that would indicate 
whether or not a company was an e-commerce company. And what we found was there, there is no source. Um, it's kind of a determination that you need to make yourself. But we did notice that very often we would do this analysis by looking at a company's website, by looking for things like a shopping cart or a checkout page, et cetera, by looking at the structure of the web pages themselves. And since we perceived this as more of a classification task based on those website features, we scoped it out as a machine learning process where we would pull in company's website, as well as some other things like the company descriptions that we had available, those features to build a classifier to identify the company. So we kind of spec'd this out, outlined some of the requirements around uh, the app, around the recall, the, the percentage of companies that we could positively identify correctly. Um, and then worked very closely with our machine learning team to actually implement this. So there was constant back and forth um, as we provided gold data and then evaluated some of the output as we worked with them to determine the right testing procedures and the right metrics to consider. And ultimately, we were able to devise a system that can do this at scale um, very accurately, I think it has about 95% accuracy. And we were able to identify, I think, over 300,000 uh, e-commerce companies. And when you said there's 95% accuracy, do you judge that by like having some sample that you then have humans go through and categorize, or how do you judge that? Yep, absolutely. So we typically start off with two data sets when we are doing these types of projects. We have the gold data set, which is used to train the machine learning classifier, but we also have a reserve data set. So these are companies that we have identified as machine learning, or sorry, as e-commerce that are not included in the gold data set, but that we can test against. Uh, and I think I may know the answer based on the description you gave, but I just want to make sure that I understand correctly. So the, the data team at Mattermark, uh, it, is it all like one monolithic group or does it, um, do you guys get embedded into other project teams or uh, together with like the people that are developing features? Like how, how's the team structured? Yeah, so I, I would definitely advise against having these more monolithic structures. The model that we found worked most successfully is more of a tiger team model where we will have a product person, a data analyst, a machine learning engineer, and typically a back-end engineer as well, all working together um, to come up with these features. And in that kind of model, people are able to specialize, but they're also able to kind of understand all aspects of the feature itself from the data collection and some of the errors that could occur even when doing this as a human to the eventual productization um, where customers are interacting with the information that you provide. And how long do those tiger teams live for? Do they like are, are they going on indefinitely or is it just like scoped around you know one month build this feature and then dissolve and create a different team? It really depends on the nature of the um, feature itself. There are some features that we will iterate on um, in succession 
Whereas there are others that we will complete and then move on to something completely different. We do like to have kind of more fluid dynamics so that people can interact with others and just get exposure to a lot of different perspectives. Um, but you do kind of develop working relationships, which are also valuable if you continue working with the same team. Yeah. And, and- uh, I'm interested to know like how the, the evolution of this happened at Mattermark. I know you've been there for a long time, but how big is the data team today and what does that look like over time? Sure. So when I first started, we had two data interns working on the team, but, but that was pretty much it. And we didn't have a strong sense of what a data team should do, if it should be kind of more of a research org within the company, if it should be kind of more of a data munging functionality, if it should serve the growth team, the engineering team. Um, what we eventually settled on, as I described, is this org that operates at the nexus of product and engineering. But I think we came up with the Tiger team structure really by learning from some of the challenges that we had experienced when we had a more siloed organization. So we had worked on another product previously where the data team spec'd out the requirements. There was kind of a brief conversation between the spec writer and the engineer responsible for implementation about the various requirements and functionality. And then the implementation began and there wasn't this kind of tight coupling where we were testing ideas with each other, where we were making sure that there was clarity around relative priorities, et cetera. It was more that the nature of those conversations were more like, are there any blockers? Well, okay, that's it. And while those conversations are productive and need to occur, I think you really need to have more of a dialogue to make sure that everyone is on the same page as the implementation proceeds. And so ultimately with that feature, when we um, initially developed it, there were some requirements that were not addressed that would have been prioritized, but because we didn't have these conversations about the relative priorities and, and why they mattered so much, um, it just it didn't get done in the way that we wanted. And in retrospect, we were able to see that this really was kind of more of a communications breakdown, that we had taken the product development cycle and kind of sliced it up and put one team um, in charge of each of those slices. And, and that just doesn't work. And so we decided to kind of shift radically in the opposite direction, where we would have stakeholders from each of the teams involved in every single slice of the product development cycle. That makes total sense. And are there any other organizations that you used as a role model in terms of creating the structure that you have right now? Or is it really come organically from just your experience in trial and error? Um, I think it's kind of a synthesis of multiple experiences. So I had worked with Palantir prior, and I guess the model is fairly similar to their deployment org. Um, other people had worked in Microsoft, and so they had experience with um, different agile methodologies as well. And so we, we kind of took all of our experiences, understanding what worked well for us in different places, and, and tried to synthesize those into a more ideal model. 
Yeah, and you, you uh, touched on something that I definitely want to learn more about. So you said you worked on on Palantir before that. I'd, I'd love to hear just the the arc of your career, how you got to, to where you are today uh, at Matterwork. Sure. So I suppose my career trajectory is fairly unusual. I actually began in the defense and intelligence world. Um, right out of college, I worked for a think tank that was focused on understanding adversary behavior. So uh, we were looking at Somali piracy networks, understanding the flow of communications and financial resources among them. We also looked at various insurgent groups. Um, that was really where I had my first exposure to truly groundbreaking technology. Uh, one project that I worked on was just a survey of adversary simulation technologies for the Joint Forces Command. And what really intrigued me there was how technology could empower the human analyst. It was clear to me that you know, when you're looking at covert organizations, you do need a human analyst. Human behavior, uh, group dynamics are just too hard to understand. They're too uh, sophisticated and complex to understand automatically, but technology could empower that analyst. And that's kind of been a thread across my career. So from there, I moved on to a larger defense contractor where I was working with a uh, federal security organization to implement a semantic analysis solution. Um, again, using technology to improve uh, threat intelligence. Uh, then from there, I started working for Palantir. And so gradually, I moved kind of from the defense community more and more into technology. Uh, with Palantir, I was working with different municipal agencies to help them integrate their data and then use that integrated data set to expedite their workflows, uh, make things more operationally efficient. Now with Mattermark, I think they're, they're, these experiences have really kind of formed my more recent activities. I, I don't see understanding startups as that different from understanding uh, you know, adversarial organizations, from understanding an insurgency or a piracy group. In both cases, the organization has an incentive to operate um, in secret, to, to not disclose various data points. And so given this kind of messy set of information, a messy and incomplete and uncertain set of information, you need to draw different inferences and you can utilize technology to help you in that process to fill in those blanks. So I, I think I'd be a pretty terrible interviewer if I didn't ask some follow-up questions about Somali pirates. <laughs> uh, um, I'm, I'm interested just to know, like, what uh, what did you analyze with them? What did you learn about them? Uh, if, how accurate was that movie? Really, anything you could say about Somali pirates would be podcast gold. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we were working with a, another uh, defense contractor that had intelligence assets embedded in various piracy cells. And so they would feed us unstructured information and we would try to kind of draw social graphs from there. What's really interesting about Somali piracy is that it is this kind of hybrid breed of informal, very networked structure and also bureaucracy. And so you would have this kind of large 
uh, set of individuals who would form these kind of pirate corporations and they would work together on a series of attacks. But then some would migrate to a different organization. And so it was kind of like they were forming these companies and then disbanding the companies and reforming other companies. I think what was really interesting about the piracy groups was, in fact, the level of organization that they had, where there would be a financier and kind of a chief executive within the group and a chief operating officer within the group. And I think one thing that you can extrapolate from that is that when people form groups, there are certain roles that always exist. Hmm. That That's fascinating. And, and uh, how were you actually collecting the data about the pirates? The pirates? Was this like uh, intercepted radio transmission or how did any information get out? So we had intelligence assets. So there, there were people embedded within uh, the piracy cells. Oh, wow. So like literal spies that were like double agents, basically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That is super cool. Uh, and then once, do you know why someone would, um, you know, you're part of one piracy cooperative today and then tomorrow you decide to, to spin off and start your own or to, to join a different one? Was the motivation entirely economic or, or like why did they, what, what caused that, that, that change? Um, I would say that the motivation was primarily economic. They're certainly very profit-driven. Um, in again, an interesting vein, I do think that they're kind of like pirate career trajectories. So just as an individual might work for part of their career at one company and then move on to another role at another company, we saw similar behaviors among the pirates. Um, there's certainly other elements that are fairly interesting. So a lot of the activity occurred across different tribe lines um, within Somali pirate, uh, within Somali culture in general. The, the tribes play a very strong role, and the interactions with the community were important as well. So that certainly affected some of the organizational dynamics. Very interesting. Um, I wish I knew more about Somali pirates. Uh, <laughs> super cool. Um, Taking it back to uh, today and, and Mattermark and, and your current role, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm interested to know more about is like the, the data team at Mattermark, everything we've talked about so far is primarily around um, you know, building the product. Mm -hmm. uh, but some of the things that data teams at other companies are responsible for, like um, you know, managing reporting for the organization or understanding the ROI of different marketing campaigns, is that in the scope of your team as well or is that handled by other folks? So that is typically handled more within the product org, but we do a lot of that when we're actually scoping out these projects. So for example, we recently iterated upon our keyword search to make it more of a semantic search. We wanted to give people the ability to search through Mattermark in a similar way to how they search in Google. So not just like click an industry filter to identify all healthcare companies, but type in a keyword and show me all companies related to the biome. Uh, but in order to really understand whether this was a valuable investment, we had to kind of dive deeper into our customer logs to understand how they were using uh, the keyword search currently to determine um, what additional layers of filtering they were applying when using this feature um, and to just get a better sense of what 
what we would really need to build in to improve it. Got it. And and what is the the like the reporting stack look like for when you're looking through the the customer logs? Is that um, are you using external tools for that? Have you built tools for analyzing customer usage of the product? How, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. I, I'd say most of the analysis is occurring um, in Excel, but also using Python. Uh, when we have kind of more complex data sets like queries, et cetera, we do often need to use Python because it gives us a little bit more flexibility to manipulate and understand the information. And then do you use uh, Python also for, is that the language that the product is written in or is that done separately? Yep. Some of the uh, some of the product is in Python. We also use Ruby, Clojure, and Java. Okay, got it. And so when your um, when 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 your team is like building a model for um, you know doing the, like the, the classification that you were talking about before um, for for uh, like industry, is that uh, is that model like live or are you doing that on a like a batch basis and then categorizing all the things and then at some period in the future, um, you know, just refreshing the analysis? Like how what's the latency of that data? I guess maybe a better way to answer that question. Mm-hmm. So initially, it was um, kind of like a one and done thing where we would build a classifier, and if it hit a certain accuracy, um, a certain precision and recall threshold, we would push it out into the product. We're actually currently in the process of making that system a little bit more sophisticated. We do uh, have data analysts as well as some data entry specialists who are reviewing companies and adding tags manually. And so we want to be able to really leverage that as well. And so essentially the system that we are creating will understand when there is kind of a critical mass of data enough to rebuild the classifier. And if the new classifier has higher uh, recall and precision than the existing one, the new one will get pushed out. Got it. That makes sense. And I imagine there's uh, most of the information you deal with probably doesn't change a lot day to day. Am I right thinking about that? Like, you know, a company's going to be an e-commerce business for, if not its entire life, you know, years at a time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the classification task does occur um, on schedule. You know, companies do change their websites fairly often. And so it's less frequent that we will see a company, um, an e-commerce company no longer become an e-commerce company, but it is possible that they will make some improvements to their website that enable us to identify it as an e-commerce company. Got it. And, and are there um, are there other attributes that you're trying to surface for your customers that are things that you expect to change more frequently, like uh, some measure of traction or company news or anything like that? So right now, our, our growth metrics and our company news are, are calculated pretty, pretty frequently. So we, I, I'd say the timeliness for both of those is very good. Um, we are definitely always working to make improvements on the NLP side so that you know, the second that something is published, we can... Um, extract valuable information from it, but right now we're able to do that within 24 hours. So timeliness is not not a huge concern for us at the moment. Got it. That's great. Uh, and uh, I think we may have touched on this before, but I want to make sure I understand. 
Uh, so the the operational reporting for Mattermark, like uh, you know, number of subscribers that you signed up, number of people who've turned off, you know, uh, usage of the product, uh, think things like that. Uh, what what are the systems you use to to analyze that? Mm-hmm. So we certainly use Google Analytics and Mixpanel. Um, a lot of the information that we review when doing uh, feature development and kind of defining some of the requirements around data integration, uh, we we will use Python and Excel to manipulate. Got it. Okay, cool. And, and do you do much um, like advertising on either Google or anywhere else to acquire new subscribers, or how, how does that work? Uh, we do use Google AdWords. I'd, I'd have to honestly talk with our marketing team to know exactly where we're resources right now got it so the the marketing the the data end of marketing is done by the marketing team not by the data team yeah makes sense okay cool and is there uh how much if at all collaboration is there between like marketing and and data like the 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 systems that you use separate as well um or are some things leveraged by by both teams so the systems are a somewhat separate. Where there is a lot of close collaboration is with regards to content marketing. So the data team is immersed in the data all of the time and we understand some of the new integrations that we're doing and how we can kind of surface those to customers in a really interesting way. I think a great example is related to some of our recent efforts to identify companies, startups, uh, within Asia. So we engaged in a pretty aggressive effort to identify startups and funding events across Southeast Asia, um, China, India, and Japan. And our coverage in those regions has really improved fairly drastically. Now, we don't just want to identify these companies and get the funding events and then have nobody know about it. And so we're in the process of working with marketing to create some reports on the Asian startup ecosystem so that we can highlight these efforts and really showcase what customers can glean from the information we're providing, what actionable insights they can obtain from the data that we've collected. Absolutely, and, and I know we've uh, we collaborated on uh, one of our benchmark reports w- with you guys, uh, just on, on e-commerce and growth and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, so I know that you guys do really good work there. So definitely look out for uh, the, the Asian report uh, on startups that's coming out. Um, are there uh, like if you had a magic wand uh, and there was you could choose any question to answer, um, and it's, it's probably something you know you'll figure out eventually. But if you could do it instantly tomorrow, what would that be? I think the question that I get asked most often, um, both externally and internally, is what is the career trajectory for a data analyst? Um, I think it's unclear whether people will specialize a lot, um, whether they will move more into the engineering org, the product org, and particularly for some of the younger data scientists who are just kicking off their career, the fact that there is no kind of well-defined path can be a little bit scary. So I don't think that there is kind of one clear answer or one clear path, and I think that's kind of part of the exciting thing related to uh, career in data science. But 
it would be interesting to just get some more color around what makes sense. And what does that look like at Mattermark? Um, or, or is the org so young that you don't even know the answer yet? To a large extent, the org is so young that, that we don't really know the answer yet. And I think you know, providing our data analysts with some clarity into that ambiguity it is really helpful. I think they certainly understand that we continue to evolve. And so career path in three years may be very different than the career path now. That said, we do have kind of two separate trajectories where people move more into uh, technical roles, uh, supporting the machine learning engineers, learning more about machine learning concepts, and eventually building uh, some either NLP or classification systems of their own, or they move closer into the product realm where they're interacting with customers, understanding their needs, translating those into feature uh, requirements and, and leading implementation. And is there anything that your team does right now that you kind of wish you could uh, buy a product to do or outsource to a third party, something that you feel like isn't necessarily one of your core competencies, but is is on your team nonetheless? Yeah, I mean, I think we are getting smarter about gold data collection. Um, We're learning to do it ourselves for a shorter period of time and then rely more on uh, crowdsourcing as time goes on. Um, It would be great to kind of see crowdsourcing platforms evolve uh, to enable us to have a little bit more flexibility and supervision as we proceed. And you said goal data collection, is that what you said? Mm -hmm. So when we're building different classifiers, um, when we're building different NLP systems, we want a a good set of data that can be used for training. Oh, okay. I understand. Uh, And then what about the the reverse of that question? Is there anything that uh, you are using a product or a service for that you think that you'll probably need to to bring in-house? will probably need to bring in-house. You know, I, I'd have to say that I, I don't think there is. I think we've been really smart about doing things ourselves first before outsourcing so that we understand or, or purchasing uh, so that we understand um, all of the nuances around that utility, um, around the process that we're automating or, or the service that we're providing first. Okay, that's great. Uh, are there any other uh, things like uh, uh, that you think would be worth plugging, uh, whether it's a job posting at Mattermark or an open source project or any cool website or product that you think uh, our audience would uh, probably like to know about? Well, I mean, God put a, a plug for Mattermark itself. I think in terms of selecting tools, Mattermark has actually been super helpful. So, for example, we uh, recently built a chatbot um, during a Hack Day project. And there's just this plethora of you know, bot platforms that are becoming available. And it's really hard to kind of navigate through but we were able to use our own platform to understand which of the uh, bot developer tools had the most traction, um, which had funding, and are therefore probably going to be supported for uh, 
the midterm at least and to make really an internal decision there. So got, got to put in a plug for Mattermark. Um, we also use Clara Labs for scheduling and that has just freed up so much time for us. Um, having these AI assistants, I think it, it's really the next wave, it's the future. Are there any things that uh, you've noticed that the AI assistant can't do or so far has it handled everything that you've thrown at it? Uh, so with the AI assistant, you know, I think there, there's probably some human competency behind there as well. So it, 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 it's impressive how well can handle requests. I once had someone kind of test it out saying, I want to have a meeting at a Starbucks with a uh, Clover machine. And <laughs> the AI assistant was able to respond to that request. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I imagine uh, that is getting handled by a human, but it's uh, impressive nonetheless. Mm hmm. Huh. Cool. Um, awesome. And uh, so where uh, where can people learn more about you? Do you have a Twitter handle or a personal website? Yeah, absolutely. My Twitter handle is Sarah Cat S-A-R-A-H-C-A-T 21. No personal website, but definitely visit the Mattermark website. We have a lot of cool things going on there. Uh, a lot of open roles, both within the engineering product and uh, sales marketing team. So excited to scale out and really build this engine. Awesome. Well, yeah, well, I'll definitely check that out and recommend everybody else to do the same. And uh, thanks so much for, uh, for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at Stitch HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Center City, Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Jake Stein, access old episodes at statisticallyinteresting.com and find out more about Stitch at stitchdata.com. 